Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Dr Maggie Miller. Maggie's primary focus is on sustainability and ethical practices within tourism. Her work has taken her to some incredible places, examining things like power dynamics and the impact of risk and death in adventure tourism. Dr. Maggie Miller, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Sam. It's great to have you. Can I start just by asking you to introduce your research and maybe some of your your key findings? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. Broadly speaking, I guess I would say most of my research focuses on the human dimensions of tourism sustainability. And I say this, the human dimensions or the sociocultural dimensions of sustainability, because we often think of sustainability as equated to environmental justice, right? And so I like to look at the impacts of the tourism industry on the communities who are hosting these experiences for tourists and, and paying clients and customers. So some of my recent work has brought me to places like Nepal, And I looked at the impacts of the mountaineering and the adventure tourism industry within the Himalayas and specifically on those Sherpa communities or the Nepali natives who engage in those adventure tourism industries and and bring paying clients up to peaks of mountains like Mount Everest, which hopefully many people know what Mount Everest is. It's the tallest mountain in the world. So (laughs) some of that has driven some of my work and my interests. Great. And you you research tourism, which obviously often means for, for most people traveling or, or travel. And, you know, a lot, a lot of people, I, I guess, associate that with something we just, we, we do for fun, it's leisure. But in, in your mind, I know that you've written that it's also a means of broadening the human experience. Yeah, I think we tend to see tourism as leisure or holiday, something we do on our annual leave or with our families. However, there's lots of benefits and sociocultural experiences and exchange opportunities that happen when you do travel out of that familiar place, which is home, Mm. to another destination, which is unfamiliar. And you're experiencing culture and different environments and, and new things. And that broadens your own understanding of yourself, your own understanding of other cultures, and your own understanding of the world more broadly, and how you can be maybe a more responsible global citizen is, is what I like to tell my students, as well as you know people I travel with who may not study it from a critical perspective. The other side of studying tourism that I find quite interesting is I study something that lots of people work so hard to make money to then do. Right. And so I I remind my students that why we study this is because it is an industry that is growing that so many people want to do because of that broadening experience and those new opportunities that that travel brings them. Yeah, great. And can I can I just pick up on the sustainability thing that you mentioned? Because exactly as you said, I think when we hear the word sustainability, we think environmentalism. And when we think about environmentalism, we often think about air travel (laughs) as a particular thing that sort of encapsulates what we should maybe be more conscious of or or, or do less of. So is there a little bit of a contradiction here in terms of if you are talking about traveling and tourism and broadening experiences by going away and talking about this in a sustainable context, do do you often have to grapple with or wrestle with something that we've spoken about on this podcast many times, actually, which is the the whole discussion about 
global warming and climate change. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, that is something we can't overlook as tourism scholars is that environmental impact of the carbon emissions that our flight patterns put into the air and the, the contribution to that climate change. But tourism itself doesn't have to be an international destination. You can mm. be a tourist in a region one train ride away, or I've just managed to do a bike packing trip. And for any of those bikers out there, I mean, that is a sustainable form of tourism or travel where you, you put your kit on your bike and you wander through regions and cities and, and you're, you're pushing your own watts and, and creating the travel through your own legs. And that is sustainable as well. But yes, to your, to your point, I do grapple with this. I think any tourism scholar should grapple with this when you know environmentally what air travel does and you continue to not only travel for your own research, but you're going to conferences and international destinations with your family. It, it, it is a constant reminder that tourism is a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Yes, it's something I've sort of picked up with in, in some ways jokes about with with other guests on this on this podcast which is that it's it's often seems that the more you work on things related to environmentalism the more you tend to actually have to travel for for research or for conferences and, and there is a bit of a paradox there somewhere it's sometimes in what academics talk about and what they sometimes warn against and then what they do in practice so I just, I just wondered whether there was ever that sort of conflict sometimes in you in your own mind yeah, no, certainly there is that conflict. And I think COVID-19 has really brought into a head the sustainability or questions of sustainability within tourism context. I mean, pretty much most destinations have shut down where we have all these restrictions. And we are seeing a shift in some of the air quality and the emissions. And so it it has hopefully opened the eyes of tourism scholars and researchers who can then kind of report that back to governments and that trickles down to then the populace. But, you know, on the flip side, people are itching to get out and I have a feeling it might swing completely the other way. So I guess we'll only soon find out, right? If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. It's going to be an interesting one to watch, definitely. I, I know you won't want to be too judgmental, and this is just my final question about tourism generally, but do you think that a lot of people, say in this country, do tourism wrong, as it were, or they don't get enough out of it because they, they go to certain places and don't have certain experiences? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, ideally, I hope that more people reflect on their role as a tourist and, and how they are contributing to the sustainability of a place. Mm. However, you know, when you think about the hard-earned dollars that go into purchasing a trip away, you sometimes can't blame people for wanting to to kick up their feet and enjoy the sand and the ocean and lay out in the sun with their tiny umbrella drinks, right? <laughs> and you you don't you don't want to critique them, but in the same respect, the whole industry itself, we could argue, is becoming unsustainable. And in some ways, that concept of over-tourism comes to mind. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that concept. No, go on, but, tell me. Hmm. But over-tourism essentially is where the carrying capacity of a place has been met, whether it be physically or perceptually. So uh, Barcelona and places in Spain come to mind where actually the community members are like, go home tourists. We don't want you here anymore. You, you know, and, and I've been to Barcelona. You try to find a patch of beach and you, you can't put your blanket fully out because 
it's quite full. And so I think you don't want to blame the tourists because sometimes they're just engaging in what they feel is well-earned vacation time. But in the same respect, if we all continue to go to these spaces, they'll no longer be enjoyable for us as tourists because perceptually, who wants to be on a beach that's fully packed, right? So us as a tourist are going to stop enjoying these spaces, but even more so in my interest is around the community's impact and how that's affecting them. And think about congestion, think about local places like Mumbles and trying to get in and out of that place when you you are a local and you just want to enjoy a nice dinner, but you can't access dinner for another 45 minutes to an hour long drive into this traffic congested area, right? So um, it's, it's hard to cast that critical eye. I, I do agree with you that it's, it's easy from a, the critical tourism scholars perspective. We want travelers to be much more conscious and cognizant of their practices. But on the flip side, it's hard to, it's hard to be blaming people who want to just, who feel almost entitled, I guess, of, uh, for, for their leisure time and want to relax a bit. And, and yeah, it is a bit of conundrum. And I do try to, to, t- to try to have teachable moments when I'm out with my friends and we're traveling together, but you don't also want to be shaming people the entire time. Let's talk much more specifically about your work and research, Maggie, because you've done some really interesting stuff with Sherpas in Nepal. And there is a new Netflix documentary based around this, but you've also directed your own documentary on the subject, which I've watched and is very interesting indeed. So can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah. So coming to this concept of over-tourism and bringing it into an adventure tourism context. So for those who are unfamiliar with Nepal, it's situated along the Himalayas between India and China. It's got 10 of the 14 tallest mountains in the world. And so mm-hmm. Nepal, as it struggled to become economically viable and provide positive social conditions for its people, like many countries, including places like Wales, have turned towards tourism and specifically adventure tourism or mountain tourism as a development initiative, as a way to bring you know, money and increase GDP for that country. And so my work in Nepal focuses specifically on those communities like the Sherpa and the Nepali natives that facilitate these adventure tourism experiences. Most recently, and connected to that documentary you're referring to by Jennifer Pedum, is the impacts of adventure tourism and mountaineering within those contexts. And that particular mountaineering season that that film covered, that documentary film covered, was in 2014 when there was a massive avalanche that swept and killed 16 Sherpa and Nepali guides Mm. who are leading those paying foreign climbers up to the tallest mountain on the earth, which is Everest. And that's over 8,000. It's what I want to say. They've they've clocked it at a new height, but I want to say it's about 8,850, give or take. They used to say 48 meters, but really high mountain, right? The tallest (laughs) in the world. And this becomes a bucket list for people. And that is shocking in some regards. You know, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't go swimming in a in an ocean if you've never swam in a pool um, sure. or, or, got, or, or got taught the lesson, swimming lessons, right? And so some of the people that are paying for these experiences, you have to question, again, this comes down to the ethical practices of tourism. You have to question 
their skill level and their 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 ability and and reason for being there. Yeah. What's the economy of Nepal like? Like how developed as a country is it? I think we're seeing a flux in it, but it is positioned quite low mm. on the world GDP scale. So lots of the average annual income is like a pound a day or surviving on a pound a day. And so it is quite a lower socioeconomic standing nation compared to others. And so, you know, people would often call that third world or developing nation. So actually being guides on these mountains is a really high valued position. And in fact, they can make their annual salary within three months, right? And so these are valuable positions. I can understand why some of the young Sherpa, primarily men, have gotten involved in the industry. You're starting to see more female guides, but predominantly young Sherpa Nepali men getting involved in this industry, which is often so dangerous. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's what I wondered to some extent was that on the surface, you could argue, I guess, that quite rich Westerners coming to Nepal and spending some of their money is, you know, helping the Nepalese economy. It's helping the the, the individual Sherpas who get to take them up. But there are obviously very significant ethical problems associated with all of this, aren't there? Yeah, certainly. And I think this is, you know, when we talk about sustainability within a tourism context, and when you talk about sustainability in general, when we just hyper-focus on that economic gain and those positive economic benefits of something, of an industry, you start to see then the ugly head of the environmental impacts and the socio-cultural impacts. And so to your point, yes, I mean, particularly ever since that uh, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay summit in 1953, I think it was May 29th, 1953. Sir Edmund Hillary, if you if you don't know him out there, is, is the New Zealander who summited with Tenzing Norgay. And since then, uh, the government of Nepal, the communities of Nepal said, hey, now, wow, we can, we can get paying clients, foreigners and Westerners coming in and and providing, putting money into, into our communities. And, and surely there's a lot of positive gains like um, increased education in the region, uh, medical facilities, different infrastructure. There's now an airport that was put in um, probably a couple of decades later after the first summit. Um, but what we're starting to see is very limited regulations in Nepal. And so they're handing out over 400 climbing permits to go up to Everest. 400. And we're talking about a very volatile, hostile, unpredictable environment, right? We're talking about weather systems. They Just recently, they've had a huge cyclone that's blown through. That's really kind of deterred a lot of people from summiting this year in 2021. But it's not very well regulated. And we're starting to see, and you may, some of you may or may not have seen those iconic lineup queue photos of going up to the summit. And this becomes very problematic because these paying clients are now standing in a queue to go get their photo off the top of Everest. And they're standing in what's called the death zone. So every anything above 8,000 meters is very dangerous. It's only 34% oxygen in these spaces. And so if you imagine trying to breathe through a straw, which is your oxygen tank, 
and you're slowly trying to, you know, decrease the amount of oxygen you're giving yourself because you don't want to run out before you come back. And so this becomes very critical for the guides to help manage these, these new contexts of over tourism and adventure. You know, there's over tourism on that mountain and, and, you know, hopefully we won't see an escalator or an elevator go up there or, or some kind of what, what have they done up to Snowden? They've got a, some tram, right? So uh, hopefully we won't see that on Everest, but I mean, the way it's looking right now is, is money has driven this industry and the other side of the sustainability conversation has been lost. And because there's such a high demand to go up Everest, does that mean that potentially Sherpas, but also the climbers themselves, are going up in conditions that are probably more dangerous than it should be for, for, for them to make that climb? Yeah. And I mean, funny enough, it kind of links back to climate change, doesn't it? Because these environments are becoming more and more unstable with more ice melt and glaciers are melting. And yes, to your point, because there's these unpredictable conditions, you often have the teams and the commercial guiding companies looking for what they call, quote unquote, weather windows. And so the positive, good weather windows, I mean, you know, Think about any time you go to any mountain, uh, whether it be Snowden or over to the Peaks District, you're, you're obviously wanting to be up on the top when the weather's best. So these, these commercial guides are looking for these weather windows. Well, when you have multiple teams, nine or 10 teams of maybe five paying clients, and then each paying client has one to two guides helping them, sometimes dragging them up to the top, you're going to have a queue, aren't you? And that becomes dangerous. Not to mention, you also have the very real risks of technical climbing, ice and ice blocks and crevasses and falling off precipices and wind and that kind of thing. And so, so yeah, it, it, the demand is meeting the fatalities of, of the endeavor itself. And that calls into question the sustainability, but also responsibility. Who's responsible for these lives? Should it be the Sherpa's responsibility? Is there quite a lot of rubbish and litter associated with this as well? Yeah, and that's there is indeed. Um, that's something I my research hasn't specifically focused on because that would be more linked to kind of the environmental sustainability. But even this year, twenty twenty one, there's been a big cyclone. People have kind of rushed back down the mountain, and in Camp Three, they've left tents, oxygen bottles, sleeping bags, cooking equipment. And there's a big debate of whether to go back up there and get it or just leave it, right? And if anyone knows in outdoor context, that whole concept of leave no trace is very real. You want to kind of leave the environment as you left it. Well, when your life matters and carrying a tent back down or oxygen tanks back down the mountain provide, you know, is that much harder without oxygen. Sure. Yeah. And so you you tend to see that, not to mention, not to get gross, but the feces and the the the, the loo, the big world's biggest loo on the side of Everest, you know, mm. and that becomes quite an issue as well, especially as we talk about ice melt. Just think about what that means for the water supply of those communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get you. A clear part of the Netflix documentary, I believe, is you know this this whole point as well about people who come to Nepal not being particularly respectful of the local culture either. Yeah. And, and I think maybe not recognizing the role of Sherpa and Nepali climbers. I think 
you know, oh, crack open into thin air or any of those Western foreign books about, aha, I'm a white male who's made it to the top of Everest. You don't often hear the names of the Sherpa climbers and the individuals that have helped make that possible. And so not only is there a disrespect to, and I think actually lots of mountaineers do try to integrate and, and respect the communities whilst there, but it's coming back. And I think that's where representation and telling the stories and including the names of your Kamirita Sherpa or Pemba Sherpa, recognizing these individuals by names who have helped enable your success and your triumphs on that mountain. And so And I think that's why I love Jennifer Peedom's documentary, Sherpa, because it really focused on the story from the Sherpa climbers' perspectives versus the usual of the triumphant Westerner who's made it to the top of Everest. The documentary that you made, which I think was part of your PhD studies, the the one that I mentioned that I've watched, is really interesting. But you you also get a sense from it about how just how lovely and charming in many ways, the Nepalese Sherpas who you met were. What was it like working with them? Yeah, brilliant. I mean, I think Nepal's got a hold on my heart, the people, the culture, the environment. It's all so beautiful. And those individuals, I mean, so relatable. You know, they have families, they have past experiences that they want to share. And and that's why I really entered in that space, wanting to understand their stories, their narratives around what it means to be a climbing guide within these global arena, these these massive peaks. And just having a laugh and 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 thinking about their experiences has been just brilliant. And I was able to kind of trek along the way. I started down in the south in a region called the Sulu and then kind of up through the Kumbu and was able to kind of stay locally, eat the Momo, eat the Dalbat, which are all local um, uh, dishes of, of the region and and really connect with the people. And 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 they're brilliant. And you you feel for them because in some sense this industry, which is very dangerous, um, they're quite connected to from a financial means. But also on the flip side, I kind of went in with those assumptions that, oh, these individuals are only engaged in the industry because they need the money. But really, they're proud. They're very proudful people. They want to climb. There's passion there. And so it's shifting from an economic discussion to a discussion of I want name and fame and I actually am climbing for sport just like any other Western or foreign climber would come to Everest. I'm climbing because I want to be on the summit 10 times or, you know, set set that that uh, fame and name up for themselves, right? And so that was actually really eye-opening for me to see that um, it's not, especially the younger generation, it's not just about the money, but it's about what climbing means as a passion, as a, as a sport and and some have gone on to climb other big mountains in other spaces like Denali within Alaska and various places like that. So that was really interesting. Yeah, some of their stories are are really remarkable. Some are quite moving too, aren't they? There's a there's a gentleman who you interviewed who as you were interviewing him, he'd not long suffered a stroke and he was sort of talking to you from his bed and the stroke was kind of came on because he had had a horrible experience descending I think a mountain and then I think you dedicated the film to him at the end so it's it's a it's a very human story isn't it Mm. and that's I think what 
I was hoping is that these stories humanize these people. They're not just the guides, the nameless guides that help you have your own success, but there's relationships there that should be created, particularly on such a crazy endeavor like climbing Mount Everest, which takes three months, you know, the, the acclimatization period and eventually, you know, that trust and team building that's required of, of a, a pursuit of that nature. But yeah, I know the the fellow you're talking about. And yeah, he he suffered a Lakpa Sherpa, his name is. Lakpa Sherpa suffered a stroke because he was paid to to go put a satellite dish on the top of Everest and his whole team left him. And and partly because they thought he was suffering and taking too long and he was left by his foreign paying clients and and had had endured the stroke because of the cold. And due to that, he no longer could work. Could he? And and so that there are some real risks of this industry as well. And you know, mountains and the mother nature don't cast an eye on on any particular person. And they those environments will win in the end if if you're not too careful. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. How many times have you been to Nepal? Yeah, so I cancelled my 2020 trip, unfortunately, as as many of us have cancelled our travel experiences. But I've been there five times, partly for this research. And now I'm carrying on. And I, I like to take Swansea University students to Nepal. So we did our inaugural student trip to Nepal in 2019. So that was really exciting to bring, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds over to a place that I have so much passion for and and experience the mountains firsthand and look at some of those sustainability problems and how to manage numbers within these conservation areas and in these mountain spaces. And so I've been there, yeah, five five times in total, but hopefully it's not the end of it. No, hopefully indeed, yeah. This whole idea about adventure tourism, you know, I, I, I'd never heard the phrase before I started researching your background, but obviously I know what it means. But maybe we should talk just a little bit more about it. Is it always... Is it always high risk? No, it's a good point, actually. So adventure tourism, for those like yourselves that are new to the concept, it's it's actually just a kind of a growing subset of tourism. It brings together travel, sport, outdoor recreation, and often happens in remote, sometimes extreme environments around the world. And so you think of the adventure tourism destination of the world is often called New Zealand. They're, they're the adventure capital of the world. But to your point, adventure tourism does not always have to be extreme like mountaineering. Walking, in some cases, walking hills or trekking would be considered adventure tourism. And it's that, again, that novelty of challenge and enough risks that increases those emotional highs for the individuals that are participating. Adventurers like to seek and satisfy those emotional highs. And, and sometimes adrenaline comes into it and the riskier the endeavor, the more adrenaline. But there's a concept called soft adventure, which would probably be like your trekking, your horseback riding, things that the risks are not as great. And then there's that hard adventure, more mountaineering, rock climbing, where fatality and risk of death is probably the, the ultimate kind of extreme side of those things, uh, base jumping and... Uh, sometimes scuba diving, depending on how deep you go and things like that. Those would all kind of be captured in that subset of tourism. And you look at the role of gender in all of this too, don't you? Yeah. So so since my work in Nepal, uh, what was really emphasized while there was there was very 
limited female guides, which I found quite interesting because I'm a female. I really enjoy being in these spaces and engaging in adventure. So I started thinking about that gender dynamic within adventure spaces. I think it's twofold. I think partly adventure itself is a very kind of masculine, it's got this dominant, hyper-masculine space sometimes when you think of those extreme aggression, highs, adrenaline, all these buzzwords really have that masculinity to it. And so the terrain, the remoteness is often associated with male and male individuals in these spaces, but you're starting to see a shift and you're starting to see a shift in, in other recreation contexts as well, along with mountaineering, but surfing and you're seeing more females participate in these spaces, as well as my most recent kind of interest is those guides or those entrepreneurs that are building enterprises around adventure context. Oh yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So this is a really kind of new line of inquiry. So I'm I'm kind of, you're going to test me here, but I've just Hmm. kind of been kind of looking at and, and starting to explore the connection or the nexus of adventure entrepreneurship and gender specifically from a female lens. And so entrepreneurship, again, is often dominated by men. But again, we're seeing a shift of more women starting their own businesses. So now let's take these two lenses of of gender, entrepreneurship and adventure and kind of focus in on what that experience means for women in these particular fields. How do they legitimize their businesses? Right. And and who do they attract? Why are they motivated? And, and you see a lot of lifestyle entrepreneurs anyways, surfers and people who start their own surf schools and things like that. And so it kind of bridges that lifestyle entrepreneur as well. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm just interested in the, the female-led adventure businesses and to see what that experience is like and how they get paying clients and how they legitimize their business. And is it more difficult? Do they have to to be aggressive and and hardcore and lose all their more feminine soft skills? Or is it okay to have a balance of those femininities and those masculinities within these spaces? And so it's it's at the very beginnings, but hopefully a very fruitful uh, line of inquiry that I, I tend to do in Wales, actually. So I'm, I'm bringing it back more local, which is exciting. Do you think you will find, if you have examples of female, you know, adventure entrepreneurs, that they will be I don't know, targeting the, the 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 female market more that they that you'd expect them to get more women coming in and doing certain activities. Well, it's interesting. I think you know that connects to representation, um, and which is I've I've looked at some Instagram representation of women in adventure that kind of again led into this line of inquiry around female entrepreneurs, and I do think in some ways you do have more exclusively targeting that female market. But on the flip side, you also have very capable mountaineering guides and leaders within the Peaks District and up in, uh, up in the, the range up in Snowdonia who can and are capable of leading men. But it's interesting to see if, if men then trust their lives to a woman. And that's been a really interesting dynamic. So I do think the, the market is carved out to provide a safe, trusting space for other female adventurers. But in the same, you know, breath, you don't want to to exclusively swing the pendulum that way and say, oh, this is exclusively female only space. I think there's a time and space for that. 
but I'd like to see a more integrated, diverse, I'd like to see more people of color in the outdoors. I, I would like to see more individuals with disabilities in the outdoors and in pursuing adventure. And so it's setting up these spaces and perhaps it is just having more women or individuals with disabilities owning these operations and businesses because then they can consider the barriers that were once there for people and individuals like them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does indeed. Now, you mentioned a moment ago about COVID and about the recovery and about the future of tourism. So I've got a question that maybe will encompass that, but perhaps other things as well. So what do you see the future of tourism being, not just in terms of how how it all plays out with our hopeful, rapid you know, emergence from sort of uh, from COVID restrictions, but also what is going to be the future of tourism in, in general, do you think? Or indeed, what would you like it to, to be like? So sorry, it's a multi-part question. You know, <laughs> to, to, to take it as you wish. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. I think a lot of tourism scholars are are being asked this, something similar. I think in the wake of COVID-19, the global tourism industry has been devastated. That's unquestioned. You know, we look around and lots of us have canceled our trips abroad, have canceled even our trips across the border to England or up to Scotland, right? And we're only starting to see an emergence of these hospitality and tourism industry and businesses get their footing again. The world came to a grinding halt, right? And and thousands of destination countries and communities lost their primary source of income, right? When these these industries shut down. And that becomes a huge problem. But in some respects, is it a moment to not pause and think how we then move beyond this? And like you said, kind of back to your question, then what does that mean for us moving forward? My hope is that this has opened our eyes a bit, like you said, around environmental sustainability in the beginning around air travel. What's that mean? And and are there some kind of restrictions or new practices that can be implemented, whether it be something as crude as a carbon tax, you know, the more carbon you use, the more you pay. And some people can afford to that. But then on the flip side, doing that then restricts travel to certain populations. So who can travel and who can't becomes a big question. And that that worries me as well, is if we do start putting a carbon tax on on travel or or various ways of regulating the amount of travel through economic means, that also becomes a bit of a problem. So what is tourism's future? I'm not sure, but I know it lies in the generation that hopefully will be listening to this podcast. I think we need tourism scholars, researchers, managers, marketers to start picking up with these questions, to ask who has access to travel, to think critically about what sustainability means within these tourism contexts, what over-tourism does to a community, how it actually erodes the very culture and the uniqueness of places that tourists are motivated to do. Like we go to a place sometimes because the culture is supposed to be different from ours, but what happens when places become placeless? Right. And, you know, there's a McDonald's and a Starbucks on every corner in every city. And, and now what is culture then? So it's really interesting. There's there's a lot going on around the tourism industry that COVID's shone light on. And, and of course, we could say this has been growing because of globalization. But hopefully COVID gave us a bit of a pause to rethink tourism and slow down. Why do we have to be in a pro-growth model? 
why is the ultimate goal economics? You know, and I know a lot of destinations rely on this economics, but maybe it's time for them to rethink what industries they need to nurture. I guess some people would argue that we're in a we follow pro growth models because economic growth means increased wealth and increased wealth means increased living standards and that's the thing you have to balance it all up with i suppose yeah certainly but then we got a question does that does that equate to happiness and and well-rounded livelihoods and lives i you know and it, no. i agree with you that okay. is probably the rationale of the pro growth model for sure 100% i'm with you on that but you know that's where i want people to start to be critical, but why, but so what, and what does that mean? And, and just ask, ask the follow-up question, I think is, is what hopefully people will start to do even within their own tourism practices. I think this goes back to a, a point I made earlier, and this doesn't particularly reflect what I think as it happens. I'm not sure it reflects necessarily what you think, but I suspect there are some people perhaps within academia who would quite like a saying that went along the lines of people should travel less, but travel better. Yeah, travel less, but travel better. And it, it, that kind of rings true with this. There's this concept um, called slow tourism, like the slow food movement. Slow tourism is spending more time in a place, slowing down and engaging in local businesses, which would be that travel better, quote unquote, whatever better means. But in this sense, you know, let's say better means engaging with the community, contributing financially to that community directly rather than the Marriott or, you know, the village hotel that has some HQ over in London and the communities never see that money, right? And so thinking critically about how you can travel better, how can you inject your money into those very communities that you are using and and exploiting, for lack of better words? I, I think about that all the time, even bike packing, you know, I'm not spending much money up there, but hopefully I'm bringing less negative environmental degradation to those communities. And then when I do spend money, I try to spend it on the local cafes or every now and again, get myself a, a bed and breakfast that I know that money is going directly into the hands of those residents versus a big multinational corporation, for example. Let's find out a bit more about you then, Maggie, because you, you work obviously in Swansea. I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and say that you're not originally from Swansea. So, um, you know... <laughs> what gave you that idea? I, know, that I have no idea. Uh, but uh, tell us where you started off with all of this and how your interest in, yeah, in, in tourism, in the industry, and in all of this as an academic discipline began and how it developed. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And despite my best attempts at refining my Welsh accent, I haven't quite got it right. You'll get there so, in the end, don't worry. <laughs> as, as will I. <laughs> so yes, please do forgive me. No, so the accent comes originally from the United States. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania and, and then eventually, you know, out to California, did some of my own traveling around before I went back to grad school up in Canada. So I spent some time doing a tourism policy and planning degree as a, at the master's level. It was a two-year degree and eventually rolled into a PhD at the University of Waterloo, specifically looking at, yes, mountaineering, recreation contexts, and the impacts of that on those communities that we've just discussed. 
And eventually, after a few gigs and bits and bobs over in Canada, I did finally come over to Swansea to work at Swansea University as a senior lecturer. And people were like, oh, why Swansea? I was like, well, they have surf, of course. So of course, <laughs> I'm very driven always by my adventurous pursuits. And so I blindly moved to Swansea on a whim, very typical, my style, kind of very limited research to what Swansea was beyond its Gower surfing. So I didn't know they had surfing and, and, and that brought me here, but I've, I haven't looked back since I've really loved the people, love the culture of Wales and the access to other spaces in Europe has been great. And, and the job itself, I've, I've met some great students and then finally being able to do what I love is bringing students to other destinations and, and teaching them about the industry that I think is, is quite pivotal to to our world and to those cultural exchanges, which we started off with. If I were to guess, and I didn't know anything about you, I would think you perhaps worked in the geography department. But um, <laughs> what academic discipline are you? do you sort of belong to, as it were? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And see, this is the thing about tourism. It is very multidisciplinary, Absolutely. isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so tourism has those geography contexts. And, you know, part of me talks very much like a social geographer, However, tourism is also a business, right? And there's those industries. So I'm actually in the business department within the School of Management at Swansea University. And I think the important thing about business is, is bringing people, critical scholars with, like myself, from other disciplines into the School of Management, because you have then that broader context of how to make businesses more sustainable, looking beyond that bottom line. And so hopefully, my colleagues feel that bringing my insight into the business school has been helpful rather than harmful. And it's, it's broadened the conversation and, and provide that new lens into some of the questions we're asking. And, and this is something that people in academia are very keen to do, isn't it? It's, it's to collaborate, it's to think across subjects. It's to not sort of what we say silo. It's not to sort of box ourselves into just one little particular area. So do you, do you find that there are lots of opportunities for collaboration with other kinds of academics, both in Swansea, but also in other institutions across, well, the world even? Certainly. And I, I think you're right. I think silos are hopefully long gone. We're starting to see even faculty mergers at Swansea University. But I think cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, however you want to deem it, life's problems are much more complex than one discipline. And so, for example, I'm working with engineers, I'm working with social scientists and geographers in Nepal, again, for another project. And I come from the business department, but we're looking at sustainable engineering solutions, particularly e-bikes and how we can generate affordable e-bikes for rural communities within Nepal for social enterprise development. And so they all link, but we need those specialisms from other faculties and other colleagues in order to make these projects successful. So I do think more and more we're going to start to see cross-disciplinary work. And in fact, our funders, people like the government and various grant bodies want to see that approach anyhow. And if there are people listening to you who are interested in either studying the kind of things that you work on or even in the long run going into your line of work and doing the kind of research that you do, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I think my advice always to somebody who wants to pursue 
something like tourism or or even higher education in a master's level is to think about your own experiences, think about what you enjoy and your own interests, but then also the trends and the questions that emerge around those interests. And that's kind of what led me to where I am is I love traveling. Traveling was great, but what confused me when I went traveling is why my own privilege allowed me to access travel, but then various individuals could not access travel or the impacts we had on the host communities. And so I started to look into those questions. So my advice is to take a moment to reflect on your interests, but also look at the trends and the the various things and questions that bubble up around those interests. And hopefully that will lay some foundations to keep you connected to your topic and, and pursue that further in your own educational or employment, future employment. Great. Well, thank you. Um, Maggie, it's been a really interesting conversation. I, I've, I've learned a lot. It's given me a lot to think about. And what we will do is put the links to the documentaries that you've either been involved with or have made on the page when we publish this podcast. So people can follow up with that and, and watch them too, because they are, they're very good and I highly recommend them. So thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. It's been great. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure. And to anyone who, who may have further questions around studying tourism, please feel free to extend a link to my bio or Swansea Uni page, they're more than welcome to reach out and contact me and happy to further discuss education opportunities. Wonderful. Yeah. And indeed, to find out more about Maggie's work, you can visit her staff profile page on Swansea University's website. To find out more about this podcast and the university's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Dr. Maggie Miller. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.